0: Orange Curtain, a look at 80s music from Orange County, California, music that came from here and music that came to here. Join me, your host, Doug Crandall, every Thursday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Good evening. Welcome to Behind the Orange Curtain, episode 11, where we'll be talking about glam rock and the Sunset Strip. Behind the Orange Curtain explores music that came from here, Orange County, California, to influence the rest of the world, and music that made it to Orange County, California, from around the world, to influence those of us who lived here in the 1980s. Glam metal, also known as hair metal, or pop metal, is a subgenre of heavy metal, which features pop-influenced hooks and guitar riffs and borrows heavily from the fashion and image of the 1970s glam rock. Early glam metal evolved directly from the glam rock movement of the 1970s, as visual elements taken from acts such as T-Rex, The New York Dolls, and David Bowie were fused with the decidedly more heavy metal leaning and theatrical acts such as Alice Cooper and KISS. The first examples of this fusion began appearing in the late 1970s and early 1980s in the United States, particularly on the Los Angeles Sunset Strip music scene, pioneered by such bands as Motley Crue, Rat, Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, Striper, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, and Dokken. It has achieved huge commercial success from approximately 1981 to 1991, bringing to prominence such bands such as Poison skid row cinderella and warrant from a strictly visual perspective glam metal is defined by flashy and tight-fitting clothing makeup and overall androgynous aesthetic in which the traditional denim and leather aspect of heavy metal culture is replaced by spandex lace and heavy use of the color pink glam metal suffered a decline in popularity in the early mid-1990s as the grunge and alternative phenomenon revolutionized hard rock and fans taste moved toward the more more natural and stripped-down aesthetic and a rejection of the glam metal visual style and chose to look at the raw aesthetics and sound of grunge. The glam metal scene can really be broken up into two phases and we'll cover both tonight. The first phase really took off in 1981. By 1983 It was really the breakout year for heavy metal. Quiet Riot's Metal Health was the first heavy metal album to reach number one in the Billboard charts. Quiet Riot's success paved the way for many metal acts, glam and otherwise, as the decade progressed. That same year saw a larger wave of heavy metal albums achieve previously unheard of commercial success, with Motley Crue releasing its second album, Shout at the Devil, Def Leppard releasing its third album, Pyromania, and Kiss releasing Lick It Up. Though glam metal had not truly emerged as a commercial viable heavy metal subgenre, these bands opened the doors. The most active glam metal scene that was starting to appear was in the clubs on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles, including The Trip, The Whiskey A Go Go, and The Starwood. These clubs began to avoid booking punk rock bands because of the fears of violence, and many began looking at metal bands, usually on the pay-to-play basis thus creating a vibrant scene for hard rock music. An increasing number of metal bands were able to produce debut albums in 1984, including bands like Rat, Bon Jovi, Great White, Black and Blue, Autograph, and Wasp. Lita Ford put out her second album called Dancing on the Edge. Quiet Riot released its follow-up to Metal Health called Condition Critical. Dokken released its second album called Tooth and Nail, and KISS released the glam-sounding Animal Eyes. Let's look at the first artist of the evening. Although not a glam rock band, these brothers were born in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, sons to a Dutch musician. The family moved to Pasadena, California in 1962. The youngest brother began studying classical piano and became quite proficient, although he fully never mastered the art of reading sheet music. Eventually, the brothers started playing music together in the 1960s, the youngest on the drums and the older on the guitar. While the youngest was delivering newspapers to pay for his new drum set, his older brother would sneak over and play him. Eventually, the younger brother found out about it. And out of frustration, he told his older brother, OK, you play the drums and I'll go play your guitar. And how fortunate are we that they did flip-flop because out of that came the sounds that would create Van Halen. The Van Halen brothers formed their very first band called Broken Combs in 1964. As they progressed and gained popularity, they started to play many backyard parties and changed their name to the Trojan Rubber Company in 1972. The Van Halen brothers formed a band called Genesis featuring Eddie as the lead vocalist and Alex on the drums and Mark Stone on the bass. They initially rented a sound system from David Lee Roth, but decided to save money by letting him join as the lead vocalist, even though his previous auditions had been unsuccessful. By 1974, the band decided to replace Stone, so Michael Anthony, bassist and lead vocalist from a local band, Snake, was auditioned. Following an all-night jam session, he was hired for bass and backing vocals. The band later changed its name to Mammoth when they discovered the name Genesis was already being used. And in 1974, Mammoth officially changed its name to Van Halen. According to Roth, this was his brainchild. He felt it was a name that had power, like Santana. They played backyard parties and on a flatbed truck in Hamilton Park. The band got its first break when they were hired to play at Gazari's, a formerly famous but down-at-the-heels nightclub on Sunset Strip, which closed in 1996. Rodney Bingenheimer saw Van Halen at Ghazari Club in the summer of 1976, so he took Gene Simmons of Kiss to see Van Halen. Simmons then produced a Van Halen demo tape, recording at Village Recorder Studios in Los Angeles and finishing overdubs at Electric Lady Studios in New York. Simmons wanted to change the band's name to Daddy Longlegs, but the band stuck with Van Halen. Simmons then opted out further involvement, and took the demo to KISS's management and was told that they had no chance of making it and that they wouldn't take him. In 1978, Van Halen released their debut album. Eddie Van Halen redefined what an electric guitar could do and rock and roll was changed forever. Van Halen was the most popular American rock and roll band of the late 70s and early 80s, and the process set the template for hard rock And heavy metal in the 1980s. So let's kick it off with the pioneers, Van Halen. band was formed on January 17, 1981, when bassist Nikki Six left the band London and began rehearsing with drummer Tommy Lee and vocalist Greg Leon. Lee had previously worked with Leon in a band called Sweet 19, and the trio practiced together for some time. Leon eventually decided not to continue with them. Six and Lee began to search for new members and soon met guitarist Bob Deal, better known as Mick Mars. After answering an advertisement that he placed in the recycler that read, Loud, rude, and aggressive guitar player available, Mars auditioned for Six and Lee, and was subsequently hired. Although a lead vocalist named Odine was had auditioned, Lee had known Vince Neal from their high school days at Charter Oak High School in Covina, California. And the two had performed in different bands on the garage band circuit. Neil was hired on April 1st, 1981, and the band played its first gig at the Starwood Nightclub on April 24th. The newly formed band did not have a name. Six told his bandmates that he was thinking about calling the band Christmas. The other members were not very receptive to that idea. Mick Mars remembered an incident that occurred when he was playing in another band, when one of the other band members referred to them as a motley-looking crew. He had remembered the phrase and later copied it down as Motley Crue. After modifying the spelling slightly, Neil had suggested two umlauts added to the name, supposedly inspired by the German beer lowenbrau which also had two umlauts, which the band members were drinking at the time. Let's hear my favorite song off Motley Crue's debut album, Livewire. <laughs> ¶¶ For an american metal band formed in 1979 it split up in 1989 and reformed four years later the band had many charting singles like alone again in my dreams and burning like a flame and have sold more than 10 million albums worldwide the live album beast from the east was nominated for the inaugural grammy award for best metal performance in 1989. we're talking about Dokken. Now, Don Dawkins' first band, formed in 1976, was called Airborne. He played shows at clubs in the Los Angeles area, including the Starwood on Sunset Strip. The classic lineup of Dawkins consisted of founder Don Dawkins on vocals, George Lynch on lead guitar, Mick Brown on drums, and Jeff Pilson, who replaced the rat-bound Juan Crozier in 1983 on bass. This lineup remained stable from 1983 to 1989, and then again from 1993 to 1998. Let's listen now to the first ballad of the evening, Alone Again by Dawkins. <laughs>
1: To know
0: Jump to the other side of the pond and go to the UK. While students at Tapped in School in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, there was a band that was formed called Atomic Mass in 1977. The band originally consisted of guitar, bass, and drums. Only 18 at the time, a boy named Joe would try out for the band as a guitarist. During his audition, it was decided that he was better suited to be the lead singer. The band's initial rehearsals took place. At Portland Works and their first gig was at Westfield School in Sheffield. Joe Elliott, the newly appointed lead singer, proposed the name Def Leopard, which was originally a band name that he thought of while designing band posters in art class. At Kensing's suggestions the spelling was slightly modified in order to make the name seem less like a punk band and in January of 1978 Steve Clark joined the band. According to Elliott, he successfully auditioned for the band by playing Leonard Skynyrd's Freebird in its entirety. In November, just prior to recording sessions for what would be a three-song release known as the Def Leppard EP, Kenning abruptly left the band. He would later form the band Cairo. He was replaced for those sessions by Frank Noon. By the end of the month, Rick Allen, then only 15 years old, joined the band as a full-time drummer. Sales of the EP soared after the track Get ya Rocks Off was given extensive airtime by renowned BBC radio DJ, John Peel, who was considered at the time to be a champion of punk rock and new wave music. The band had then caught the attention of the ACDC producer Robert John, or Mutt Lang, who agreed to work on their second album, High and Dry, released in 1981. Lang's meticulous approach In the studio helped them begin to define their sound. Despite the album's unimpressive sales figures, the band's video for bringing on the heartbreak became one of the first metal videos played on MTV in 1982, bringing the band increased visibility in the US. The band's next studio album, Pyromania, was released in January of 1983 with Photograph and Rock of Ages as the lead singles. In the US, Pyromania was certified Diamond, making Def Leppard among the most commercially popular bands at the time. Def Leppard's fourth album, Hysteria, released in 87, topped the UK and the US album charts. As of 2009, it had reached beyond the success of Pyromania, having been certified 12-time platinum for sales over 12 million copies in the US and has gone to sell over 25 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. But now... Let's go back to 1981 and hear Let It Go by Def Leppard. This group's origin can be traced to Rubicon, a pop-funk group led by Jerry Martini, who gained fame as a member of Sly and the Family Stone. After Rubicon's demise in 1979, bassist Jack Blades formed a hard rock trio with two other Rubicon members, drummer Kelly Kagey and guitarist Brad Gillis. Performing under the name Stereo, the threesome added keyboardist Alan Fitzgerald, a former member of Montrose, in 1980. Fitzgerald soon recommended enlisting a second virtuoso guitarist, Jeff Watson, who led his own band in Northern California. He was added to the group. As stereo, the band played small clubs in San Francisco in 1980, such as the Palms and the Tenderloin, and by late that year, the band's name was changed to Ranger, and they were opening for acts such as Sammy Hagar. In 1982, the band changed its name to Night Ranger, after a country band, the Rangers claimed a trademark infringement. At this point, they had recorded Dawn Patrol for Boardwalk Records and done opening stints for ZZ Top and Ozzy Osbourne. Rolling Stone's review of Seven Wishes took a swipe at Night Ranger's formula of sub-Broadway ballads. Other critics were even less flattering, with terms such as posers and pomp rockers put forth in very, various music guides but favorable critics such as Hit Parader underscored Jack Blade's Puppy Dog Appeal, which won over female fans, while Gillis and Watson's Dueling Guitars pleased the same male audience that guitar-driven bands such as Van Halen had already begun to cultivate. Don Patrol's first single, Don't Tell Me You Love Me, received a boost through its MTV video airplay and peaked modestly at number 40 on the Billboard Top Hot 100 Night Ranger's popularity solidified with their second album, Midnight Madness, which pushed the band from an opening act to headliner status, and by the summer of 1984, apart from Rockin' America, Midnight Madness spun off two hit ballads, When You Close Your Eyes, which hit number 14, and Sister Christian, which hit number 5. Written and sung by Kelly Keggy for his younger sister, Christine, Sister Christian proved to be the band's milestone, but let's go back to 1982 and hear Don't Tell Me You Love Me by Night Ranger. 1973, this band became one of the most successful hard rock acts in Los Angeles in the mid to late 1970s. Originally known as Mach 1, the name was soon changed to Little Women before the name became Quiet Riot in May of 1975. The band's name was inspired by a quote from Rick Parfit of the British band Status Quo. Parfit stated that he thought the name Quite Right would make a good band name, and with his thick English accent, the term sounded like Quiet Riot. The band was inspired and chose this as their new name. In the 1970s, Quiet Riot developed a friendly but intense rivalry with Van Halen, the band they often played with in various LA clubs, including the Starwood and K-Rock's Cabaret Nightclub. Van Halen signed to Warner Brothers in 77 and released their debut album, which would achieve gold certification. Quiet Riot's contract with Sony would see their first two albums released only in Japan, albums that to this day have never been released in the United States. Founding member Randy Rhodes became tired of the lack of success and would later try out for Ozzy Osbourne, who once seeing his audition was blown away by Randy Rhodes' talent, and he was hired immediately. Many of Randy's hooks and leads of unfinished material from Quiet Riot would appear on Ozzy's next album. In early 1982, having recruited a new drummer, bassist, and guitarist, Dubrow, who contacted Rhodes to ask if he had any objections to him reviving the name Quiet Riot for his new band, Rhodes gave him his blessing, and Quiet Riot was thus reborn after a two-year hiatus. Rhodes died suddenly in a plane crash while on tour with Ozzy Osbourne in 1982. And Sarzo, who was also formerly a member of Quiet Riot, left Osbourne's band a few months later having a difficult time coping with the grief of losing his close friend and bandmate. In September of 1982, with the helper of producer Spencer Proffer, Quiet Riot finally got signed to a U.S. recording contract with CBS Records for the album, Metal Health, which was released on March 11, 1983. The group's landmark single, Come On, Feel The Noise, was released on August 27, 1983. It was a cover of a 1973 song by Slade. The single spent two weeks at number five on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in November of 1983 and made history as the first heavy metal song to ever crack the Hot 100. The success of the single was instrumental in ushering in a new era of unparalleled success for heavy metal music in the 1980s and helped carry the album Metal Health to the top of Billboard album chart, making it the first American heavy metal debut album to ever reach number one in the United States. On November 26, 1983, Quiet Ride became the first heavy metal band to have a top five hit and a number one album in the same week. Their success was aided in no small part by Come On, Feel the Noise and its video in heavy rotation on MTV. Metal Health displaced the police's synchronicity at number one and stayed there for just a week until Lionel Richie, Can't Slow Down, took over the number one spot. For you right now, Metal Health by Quiet Riot. for another American heavy metal band that had significant commercial success in the 1980s with their albums having been certified as gold, platinum, and multi-platinum by the RIAA. Along with groups like Motley Crue, they have been recognized as instrumental in the formation of the early 1980s Los Angeles glam metal scene, also known as Hair metal or pop metal, as previously mentioned. The group is perhaps best known for their singles such as Round and Round and Lay It Down, each track having ranked on Billboard's top 40. The band is Rat. In July of 1983, Rat signed with the production company Time Coast Music. The company was run by the band's then manager, Marshall Burl. They released a self titled EP which sold over 100,000 records. The band grew in popularity on the Hollywood L.A. club circuit, selling out multiple shows on weekends. Stephen Piercy and Robin Crosby co-wrote the band's first single, You Think You're Tough, which found its way onto local radio stations KLOS and KMET in Los Angeles. The self-titled independent EP was well-received, and the band was signed to Atlantic Records. Rad immediately started writing and recording their first full-length album, Out of the Cellar, which was released in 1984, and was praised by both fans and critics. Piercy's raspy yet bluesy vocals were noted for melding with the pyrotechnic guitar playing of twin leads by Crosby and Demartini. The album scored much radio and MTV airtime, with songs like Round and Round, which peaked at number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100. The video for Round & Round was notable for its guest appearance by Marshall Burl's uncle, Milton Burl, and his Uncle Milty drag character. Out of the Cellar became a commercial success, going platinum many times over in the United States and making Rats stars at home and abroad. The album release was capped off by a successful world tour that saw the band selling out stadiums and arenas worldwide. Out of the Cellar is widely regarded as the band's best work and a definitive moment in 1980s heavy metal, while Round and Round scored number 61 on VH1's greatest hard rock song show. Here it is for you now, Rat and Round and Round. This next artist began performing live music in 1975 at the age of 13, playing piano and guitar with his first band called Rays. At 16, this young man met another young man named David and formed a band called Atlantic City Expressway. In 1980, he recorded his first single, Runaway, in his cousin's studio, backed up by studio musicians. The song was played by a local radio station on a compilation tape. By mid 1982, out of school and working part time at a woman's shoe store, John Bon Jovi took a job at Power Station Studios in Manhattan, a recording facility where his cousin Tony Bon Jovi was co owner. John made several demos, including one produced by Billy Squire. In 1983, John visited a local radio station, WAPP, The Apple, in Lake Success, New York, to write and sing jingles for the station. He spoke with the DJ, Chip Hobart, and the promotion director, John Lassman, who suggested that John let WAP include the song Runaway on the station's compilation album of local homegrown talent. The song began to get airplay in the New York area, Then other sister stations and major markets picked up the song. John saw and was impressed with a hometown guitar hero, Richie Sambora, who was recommended by a fellow bassist, Alec John Such, and drummer, Tico Torres. Sambora had toured with Joe Cocker, played with a group called Mercy, and had been called up to audition for Kiss. With the help of their new manager, Doc McGee, they recorded the band's debut album, Bon Jovi, which was released on January 21, 1984. The album included the band's first hit, Runaway. Reaching the top 40 of the Billboard Hot 100, the album peaked at number 43 on the Billboard 200 album chart. The group soon found itself opening for the Scorpions in the U.S. and Kiss in Europe. Let's go back to the beginning of Bon Jovi and that first single, Runaway. Silver Star was formed in New Jersey in late December of 1972. Silver Star was created to be the New Jersey version of the New York Dolls. The name was hated by one of the founding members and was later changed to Twisted Sister. By December of 1974, the band had already played nearly 600 nights and about 3,000 performances as the band played five 40 minute shows per night, each with costume changes some ending as late as 8 a.m. the following morning. In early 1976, Dee Snyder joined Twisted Sister and became the sole songwriter of the band thereafter. They would release two albums before hitting it big. International fame came when Twisted Sister, their third album, Stay Hungry, hit the stores on May 10, 1984. During their tour, a young Metallica supported their band. Stay Hungry sold more than 2 million copies by the summer of 1985 and went on to sell more than 3 million in subsequent years. It remains the band's biggest success. Videos of hit singles, We're Not Gonna Take It, which hit number 21, and I Wanna Rock, which hit number 68 in the U.S., ran almost constantly on MTV. Despite being comedic in nature... The videos featured violence against parents and teachers, which placed the band under heavy criticism by conservative organizations. The group was singled out by the PMRC in 1985. Their songs, Under the Blade, and We're Not Gonna Take It, were specifically mentioned in the associated Senate hearings. Snyder, along with John Denver and Frank Zappa, testified before a Senate committee during these hearings on September 19, 1985. Let's hear I Wanna Rock by Twisted Sister. I Wanna Rock! rock. mid to late 1980s, glam metal had begun to become a major mainstream success in America, with many of these bands' music videos appearing on heavy rotation on MTV, often at the top of MTV's Daily Dial countdown. And some of the bands appeared on the channel's shows as Headbangers Ball, which became one of the most popular programs with over 1.3 million views a week. The group's also received heavy rotation on radio stations such as k in Los Angeles. In 1986, it was a significant year for glam metal and the music scene, as one of the most commercially significant releases of the era was put out by Bon Jovi with Slippery When Wet, which mixed hard rock with pop sensibility and spent a total of eight weeks at the top of the Billboard 200 album chart, selling over 12 million copies in the United States. It became the first hard rock album to spawn three top ten singles, two of which reached number one. The album has been credited with the widening of the audience for the genre, particularly by appealing to women as well as the traditional male-dominated audience, and opening the door to MTV and commercial success for bands at the end of the decade. As we start into the second wave of this show, there were two brothers that were inspired by bands such as Van Halen, But distressed by their message, they sought to form a band that would extol their Christian worldview and beliefs. The band was originally known as Rock's Regime. A number of guitarists almost joined Rock's Regime, including Doug Aldrich and Cece DeVille. When bassist Tim Gaines joined the band, he proposed a name change. Though the label urged them not to take this name, it came from a Bible passage from Isaiah 53, 5. By his stripes, we are healed, and it became part of the band's logo. Shortly afterward, they released the EP Yellow and Black Attack as the band known as Striper. Striper's third album, To Hell with the Devil, was released on October 24, 1986, and went platinum after spending three months on the Billboard's album charts, eventually selling more than two million copies. In addition to being Striper's most successful record, it was both the first contemporary Christian music and Christian metal album to achieve this feat. The songs Calling on You, Free, and Honestly were hugely popular on MTV in 1987, so much so that Free and Honestly both became the most requested songs on the show Dial MTV. Let's go back to the early days and hear a song called Loud and Clear by the band Striper. Moderately successful albums, this group changed its approach and hired a professional songwriter, Desmond Child, as a collaborator. Bruce Fairbairn was chosen to produce, and in early 1986, Bon Jovi moved to Vancouver, Canada, to spend six months recording a third album. They named it Slippery When Wet after visiting a strip club in Vancouver. On August 16, 1986, Slippery When Wet was released. It spent eight weeks atop the Billboard 200. The first two singles of the album, You Give Love a Bad Name and Livin' on a Prayer, both hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Slippery When Wet was named 1987's top-selling album by Billboard. And "Living on a Prayer won an MTV Music Video Award for Best Stage Performance. The band won an award for Favorite Pop Rock Band at the American Music Awards and an award for Favorite Rock Group at the People's Choice Awards. When Slippery When Wet was released in August of 1986, Bon Jovi was the support act for 38 Special. By the end of 1986, Bon Jovi were well into six months of headline dates in arenas across America. Determined to prove that the success of Slippery When Wet was not a fluke, Bon Jovi released their fourth effort, New Jersey, in 1988. New Jersey peaked at number one in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Ireland, New Zealand, and Australia. The album produced five top ten hits on the Billboard Hot 100, giving Bon Jovi the record for the most top ten singles spawned by a hard rock album. Two of his hits, Bad Medicine and I'll Be There For You, reached number one. The album's three other singles, Born To Be My Baby, Lay Your Hands On Me, and Living In Sin, reached the top ten. Here for you now is You Give Love a Bad Name by Bon Jovi. Shut This band was formed in 1983 in Pennsylvania. The band started playing the club circuit, performing mostly rock cover songs in local bars. The group formed a strong local following, but in order to further their career, the band made that decision to move to Los Angeles March 6th of 1983 and also changed the name of the group after the song by the same name by the glam metal band Kicks. The band changed their name to Poison. And they carted all their possessions to California in a Chevette and a defunct ambulance. The group struggled to survive away from home with no family and no money. Poison promoted themselves up and made the rounds performing in local famous clubs. During this period, Poison's manager negotiated a deal under which the West Hollywood Club, the Troubadour, would pay for shows. At this time, Smith, who was about to become a father and was concerned about the band's future, left the band to return home to Pennsylvania. The band auditioned for a replacement guitarist, eventually narrowing it down to three candidates, Slash, who would later join Guns N' Roses, Steve Silva, from the Joe Perry Project, and New York City-born guitarist CeCe DeVille. Although Michaels and Dahl did not initially get along with him, the band eventually agreed that DeVille's fire made him the best choice. Michaels, Rocket, Doll, and DeVille, signed to the independent label Enigma Records in 1986 for approximately $30,000. Their debut album, Look What the Cat Dragged In, was released in 1986. It originally included only one single, Cry Tough. However, Look What the Cat Dragged In became a surprise success and subsequently spawned three charting hits, Talk Dirty to Me, I Want Action, and I Won't Forget You. The record became the biggest-selling album in Enigma's history. With heavy rotation on MTV, their debut earned tours with fellow glam rockers Rat, Cinderella, and Quiet Riot, as well as a coveted slot in the Texas Jam in Dallas. The album ultimately sold 4 million copies worldwide. Here it is for you now. Poison and Talk Dirty to Me. So in Philadelphia in a suburb called Clifton Heights in Pennsylvania. A singer-songwriter, keyboardist and guitarist and a bassist practiced in the attic of the American Legion building in Pennsylvania. Gene Simmons first took interest in the band and tried to get them a deal with Polygram, but they were not interested. Bon Jovi saw them perform at the Empire Rock Club in Philadelphia and talked to his a and man, Derek Shulman, about seeing the group. Shulman also was not convinced at first either, and wanted to sign the band to a six-month development deal. But after extensive negotiations, he finally got the band Cinderella signed. When the band's debut album, Night Songs, was released in 1986, it achieved triple platinum status, selling 50,000 copies per week at one point. The heavy metal album reached number three on the Billboard charts in February of 1987, Cinderella's first tour was in 1986 with glam metal rockers Poison, opening for Japanese heavy metal band Loudness. Further tours into 1987 were spent playing to large arena audiences. They spent five months opening for then former Van Halen lead singer David Lee Roth, and seven months with Bon Jovi, taking the opening slot for the Slippery When Wet tour. Later that year, the band went overseas, appearing in Japan, Scandinavia, and at the Monsters of Rock festivals in the United Kingdom and Germany. Cinderella's second album, Long Cold Winter, was released in 1988. The album signified a shift towards a blues rock sound, though it could still be described as glam metal. A 254-show tour to support the album lasted over 14 months, and in August of 1989, the band performed at the Moscow Music Peace Festival alongside other metal acts such as Ozzy Osbourne, the Scorpions, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, and Skid Row. The tour's stage show included Tom Kiefer being lowered to the stage while playing a white piano during their hit radio song, Don't Know What You Got Till It's Gone. Right now for you, let's hear Shake Me by Cinderella. At the end of recording the album Hysteria, during a production break, lead singer Joe Elliott of Def Leppard was jamming with a riff he had come up with two weeks earlier on an acoustic guitar. Producer Mutt Lange expressed great liking to it and suggested that it be developed into another song for the album. Although already behind schedule, Lange felt that the album was still missing a strong crossover hit, and it was the last song to be added to the album. Within two weeks, the song was completed, smoothed out, and included as the 12th track on Hysteria. Elliot claims the song was at least partially inspired by the Aerosmith and Run DMC version of Walk This Way. All of a sudden, rock and rap did mix, so we wrote our own. The song's lit- lyrics were written by Elliot and Lang, and they went to opposite ends of the studio control room and delivered stream-of-consciousness words into a pair of dictaphones while the song's backing track played. Then, they swap dictaphones and try to determine what each other's words were. In the Hysteria episode of the Classic Albums documentary series, Elliot said that he thought he heard the phrase, Love is like a bomb, on Lang's tape. And that set the whole tone for the lyric. By spring of 1988, Hysteria had sold 3 million copies, not enough to cover the $5 million production cost. Thus, the band edited footage from an upcoming concert film to make a new promo clip for Pour Some Sugar On Me and finally released it as the fourth single in North America. Let's hear it now, Pour Some Sugar On Me by Def Leppard.
1: Step inside, walk this way, you and me, babe, hey, hey!
0: a hard rock band formed in England in 1978 after this individual's departure from his previous band, Deep Purple. Their early material has been compared by critics to the blues rock of Deep Purple, but they slowly began moving toward a more commercially accessible rock style. By the turn of the decade, the band's commercial fortunes had changed and they released a string of UK top 10 albums. Ready and Willing, Come and Get It, Saints and Sinners, and Slide It In. The last of which was their first to chart in the U.S. and a certified two-time platinum. David Coverdale and his band White Snakes' 1987 self-titled album was their most commercially successful worldwide. It contained two U.S. major hits, Here I Go Again and Is This Love reaching number one and two on the Billboard Hot 100. The album went eight times platinum in the U.S., and the band's success saw them nominated for the 1988 Brit Award for Best British Group. Slip of the Tongue in 1989 was also a success, reaching the top ten in the U.K. and the U.S., and received a platinum U.S. certification. The band split up shortly after its release. In 2005, White Snake were named the 85th greatest rock band of all time by VH1. Here for you now, here I go again on my own, and White Snake.
1: I don't know where I'm going, but I sure. and songs of yesterday And I've made up my mind
0: Hollywood Rose Band member Izzy Stradlin was living with L.A. Guns member Tracy Guns. When L.A. Guns needed a new vocalist, Stradlin suggested Hollywood Rose singer Axel Rose. Months later, Guns N' Roses were formed, March of 1985, by Rose and rhythm guitarist Stradlin. In June of 1985, Slash was asked by Axl Rose and Izzy Stradlin to join the new-founded Guns N' Roses along with Duff McKagan and Steven Adler after replacing some of the founding members. They played Los Angeles-area nightclubs such as the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Roxy, and the Troubadour and opened for larger acts throughout 1985 and 1986. Before one of the shows in 1985, Slash shoplifted a black felt-top hat and a Native American-style silver concho belt from two stores on Melrose Avenue in L.A. He combined the hat with the parts of the belt to create a piece of custom headwear for the show. He said he felt really cool in the hat, and it became his trademark. It was during 1985 and 86 that the band wrote most of its classic material, including Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child of Mine, and Paradise City. As a result of their rowdy and rebellious behavior, Guns N' Roses quickly received the moniker Most Dangerous Band in the World, causing Slash to remark, For some strange reason, Guns N' Roses is like the catalyst for controversy, even before we had any kind of record deal. After being scouted by several major record labels, the band signed with Geffen Records in March of 1986, Their debut album, Appetite for Destruction, released in 1987 and reached number one on the Billboard 200 a year after its release on the strength of the three singles previously mentioned. Sweet Child of Mind was the band's only single to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. The album has sold approximately 30 million copies worldwide, including 18 million units in the United States, making it the country's best-selling debut album and 11th best-selling album. Their next studio album, g and Lies, in 1988, reached number two on the Billboard 200, sold 10 million copies worldwide, including 5 million in the U.S., and included the top five hit, Patience. Right now, let's listen to Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. <laughs>
1: ¶¶
0: This next band was formed in 1984 by a guitarist who had previously been a member of Nightmare 2, along with another guitarist. The band gigged hard in California, opening for Hurricane, Ted Nugent, Striper, Black & Blue, among many others. The band's lineup completely revamped in 1987. After achieving fame on the Los Angeles club scene, the band recorded a demo tape in September of 1987 for Paisley Park Records, a record label owned by Prince. With major labels taking an interest, after recording tracks for a and Records, the band also put in a showing on the movie soundtrack, Bill & Ted's Excellent Adventure. Eventually, it was announced that Columbia had snapped up the band. The lead singer immediately spent his advance on a black Corvette, which he promptly crashed. The band we're talking about is Warrant. In January of 1988, with Columbia Records, they began recording their debut album, Dirty Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich. The album was released in 1989 in January and was a significant success, charting at the number 10 on the Billboard 200. The album spawned four hit singles on the U.S. charts, and image-wise, Warrant became a huge hit instantly and slotted right into the trend for big-haired, leather-wearing hard rock bands, and their music videos made much more of their look. The band toured with Paul Stanley, Poison, Motley Crue, Queensryche, Cinderella, and Kingdom Come, alongside copious, mtv coverage the band's momentum at this point carried them to further success with the much anticipated second album cherry pie in 1990 the album's track was released as the first single and immediately propelled itself to a top 10 placing them on the american singles chart the album had tentatively been titled uncle tom's cabin after the original opening track However, the label wanted an anthem track resulting in Lane coming up with Cherry Pie, and the track becoming not only the lead cut, but the album's title track. The album charted at number 7 on the Billboard 200, and the release of Cherry Pie was followed by a world tour with Poison, which ended in January of 1991, after a conflict between the bands over Stage Room. Here's Cherry Pie by Warren. in 1986 in Toms River, New Jersey, a bassist and guitarist recruited another guitarist and a drummer through newspaper ads. They would replace their original lead singer after they spotted a guy singing at a rock and roll photographer's wedding at the age of 18, and the members asked him to join in early 1987. That singer was Sebastian Bach, and the band is Skid Row. They began playing shows in clubs throughout the eastern United States. Sabo and John Bon Jovi were teenage friends, and Sabo was briefly a member of Bon Jovi before being replaced by guitarist Richie Sambora. Sabo and Bon Jovi agreed that if one of them made it in the music business, they would help the other one out. Bon Jovi's manager, Doc McGee, sought out Skid Row and secured the band a record deal with Atlantic Records in 1988. The band's debut album, Skid Row, released in January 1989 and was an instant success. The record went five-time platinum on the strength of the top ten singles, 18 in Life and I Remember You. Skid Row supported the album by opening for Bon Jovi on their New Jersey tour. Skid Row returned to the UK three months later, opening for Motley Crue on their European Dr. Feel Good tour and early November of 1989 with Mr. Big and with Aerosmith. In what was referred to be as the Bottle Incident by fans of the band, Bach was hit on stage with a bottle thrown from a crowd at a concert in Springfield, Massachusetts, where Skid Row was opening for Aerosmith on December 27th, 1989. Bach threw the bottle back again, hitting a girl and not the thrower, so he jumped in on the crowd to beat the person up. Here is Youth Gone Wild by Skid Row.
1: Rolling. Here's another
0: This next band from Orange County was formed by two childhood friends from the age of four that were next-door neighbors in Mission Viejo, California. As teenagers, they were playing in different bands, but both had been raised with church backgrounds. They both were playing in secular bands, Craig's was more rock-based, as my influences were more punk-influenced. Oh yeah, that's right, I said my influences. Although we would not have the staying power to solidify our legendary rock and roll status, I was able to dig up our demo tape. With myself on lead vocals, Craig Drucker on lead guitar, Rob Tracy on bass, and Bob Brenneman on the drums, we were all attending the same college group at a local church when we decided to start up a Christian rock band. The pastor would give us the name Metanoia, which in Greek means repentance. Our demo tape Had heavy influences by Motley Crue and some of the more mellow songs modeled after White Lion. Here's a single off of our demo tape called Stand Under Fire. Blackmail for future generations. That was Metanoia, and stand under fire. I thought it only appropriate to start the episode with Motley Crue, and end it with Motley Crue, as being the kings of the Sunset Strip. September 1st of 1989, Doctor Feelgood topped the Billboard 200 chart, which is the band's only album to claim this position as of 2020, and was the first album Motley Crue recorded after their quest for sobriety and rehabilitation in 1989. In addition to being Motley Crue's best-selling album, it is highly regarded by music critics and fans as the band's best studio album. In a 2015 interview, Motley Crue bassist Nikki Six related the origins of Kickstart My Heart, which he wrote while the band was already working on Dr. Feelgood. Six was playing an acoustic guitar in his house while scribbling words on a piece of paper, When the group's former manager read the words, he encouraged Six to share it with the rest of the band. Six was reluctant, but eventually did show the band, and the track came together very quickly. The phrase, kickstart my heart, supposedly refers to Six's overdose incident, where a paramedic injected his heart with adrenaline. The introduction of the song has a classic example Of a Floyd Rose bridge trick, in which Mick Mars drops three consecutive strings, resulting in a similar sound to a motorcycle shifting gears. Released as the album's second single in 1989, Kickstart My Heart reached 27 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, and in the United States in early 1990. Here it is Molly Crew Kickstart My Heart. Now it's time for Crandall's Crucial Cut. This week's Crucial Cut is a band that was formed in Queens, New York on July 18, 1981. The band was named after the disease of the same name, in which the lead singer saw in a biology textbook, chosen because it sounded sufficiently evil. In 1990, the band would pay homage to Joe Jackson by covering and releasing Got the Time on their 1990 album, Persistence of Time. Under the Covers is a segment that I introduced in Episode 5 on the Slash Records episode where I played a new band, After the Millennials, covering Danzig's song Mother. So join me next week as I pull back the orange curtain and dedicate an entire episode to Under the Covers, a format where I will be playing current artists covering 80s artists, 80s artists covering other 80s artists, and even 80s artists covering new artists. So until next week, so long and farewell. that came from here, and music that came to here. Join me, your host, Doug Crandall, every Thursday night at 9 o'clock PM Pacific Standard Time.
1: A trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play it. It's a horn
0: part. It's very pretty.
1: Just simple lines, intertwining, you know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach. And it's sort of in between, though, it's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump.